there's at least one thing we know Benjamin Franklin wasn't good at. Resting. It's 1779. The dust is still settling on the bloody Revolutionary War. The streets of Philadelphia are bustling as the heart of the newly formed United States of America. Ben Franklin, at the spry age of 73, decides it's about time he does something with his life and declares war on a new enemy. Bad spelling. Because what good is freedom if your neighbors think Philadelphia is spelled with an F? There was some recent success for big revolutionary ideas that aimed to improve on existing models. So what was Franklin's solution? A new alphabet. An American English alphabet that would do away with the frivolities and messiness of English in favor of a more refined, logical, and intuitive approach. First order of business? Cut the fat. C, J, Q, W, X, and Y? Voted off the island and replaced with newer, sexier letters. Letters for a new generation. The Pepsi to the English's Coke, the iPhone to the English Landline, the TikTok to the English Facebook, BTS to the Beatles. You get the idea. Some letters would represent blended consonants, like the th sound in think, or there goes Ben Franklin, the guy who publicly shamed my son for spelling Philadelphia with an F. Other letters brought new vowel sounds, so the existing vowels weren't asked to wear so many hats. The uh sound in umbrella, for example, would get its own letter, represented by what looks like an upside-down H. Franklin first proposed the alphabet in 1768, but put it on hold as tensions with the British boiled over. Also, it seems nobody was particularly interested in Franklin's crusade against misspelled words and silent letters. That is, until a young writer and educator by the name of Noah Webster came to Franklin with similar ideas of his own. In 1786, Webster was working on a book of American English, full of grammar lessons and pronunciation techniques. He shared his work with Philadelphia's most famous and adored man, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, now 80 years old, when he, Webster, was 28. In sharing ideas with one another, they quickly found common ground. Knock, starting with a silent K, yes, yes, quite preposterous. See, sometimes sounds like a K, and sometimes an S. <laughs> this is both chaos and a circus. Piece of pie and world peace, flower for baking, and flower in my garden. I, I have no idea what accent I'm doing there, but I'm doing it loudly and with enthusiasm, so I feel like that should count for something. To Franklin and Webster, homonyms and homophones were practical jokes and simply unacceptable. That's when Ben Franklin poured himself a cup of tea, read the Declaration of Independence by candlelight one more time, and went to bed. Because he was 80. No, of course he didn't. Franklin dug out his old alphabet to prove to the young whippersnapper that he might just have the answer to their language woes. The print blocks with his new proposed letters had collected dust for seven years, but perhaps would have better success in Webster's hands. Spoiler alert, they did not. Built on Franklin's alphabet, Webster's campaign for spelling reform failed to take hold in the minds of a new American public who saw it as too complicated to learn. Print blocks would need to be changed. Old books would be rendered obsolete. Plus, it turns out that being at war for eight years is exhausting for most people. Franklin died in 1790, and Webster carried on. Each version of his system compromised a bit more with what the American public was used to. First, 
he ditched Franklin's alphabet and tried new, more logical spellings using the existing alphabet. No redundant double letters like T's in letters. No double vowels like E-A, so words like please became P-L-E-Z. Everything should look exactly as it sounds. Well, that'll fix everything. Well, that didn't work. Then he tried eliminating only silent letters. Surely we can all agree that words like climb and crumb have no need for the B at the end, right? Wrong. Old habits die hard and change sucks, Mr. Webster. While the spelling revolution was not a success, it did lead to Webster's most famous work, the American Dictionary of the English Language. Nothing like it had existed, and its 70,000 words became the new standard for educators, authors, and newspapers across the country, including a few new spelling victories. What we now consider differences between British English and American English, multiple spellings of words like color and favorite, either with or without a U, had long been considered interchangeable, until Noah Webster's dictionary solidified the U-less, simpler version as the American version. The Brits followed suit, claiming versions with a U as correct English, starting a long tradition of red squiggly lines in Microsoft Word and confusion between American and British colleagues about whether personalization should be spelled with a Z or an S, and whether Z itself is pronounced as Z or Z, let alone what the hell football means. A tradition alive and well with my Kin and Carter colleagues across the pond, which is our seamless segue to saying hello and welcome to Look Both Ways. I'm Scott Herms, and I'm your host. Look Both Ways is a podcast about experimentation, world-changing ideas, and the willingness to get things wrong. Each episode follows a two-act structure. First, an unsung failure of the past, and second, an unsolved challenge of the present. The show is made possible by Kin and Carta, a digital transformation consultancy who exists to build a world that works better for everyone. On today's episode, language. In Act 2, what is lost when languages die? And can technology help revitalize the culture, tradition, and knowledge embedded in languages at the risk of extinction? We'll hear from Daniel Bogrudel of Wikitongues and Stephanie Witowski of 7,000 Languages. We'll also talk with Renata Altenfelder, Global Brand Director at Motorola Mobility about how they're making their operating system more accessible to communities often left behind by the tech industry. But first up, the fascinating failed attempts at invented languages, also known as constructed languages, or conlangs. Linguist Erica Okrent helps us uncover what they can teach us about human creativity, the bizarre nature of language, and how the words we use affect how we think. Because as we'll see, Ben Franklin's impulse to fix language is by no means a new one. The graveyard of proposed and failed invented languages is more vast than you might think. And while the thousands of documented invented languages vary greatly, they have at least two things in common. One, they make Ben Franklin's desire to change a few letters seem perfectly reasonable. Two, they're all born from a deep belief That language is messy and therefore should be fixed by, of course, the ingenuity and sheer will of the human mind. Erica Okrent is the author of Highly Irregular and The Land of Invented Languages. Whether she intended to or not, 
She's become the de facto expert on the aforementioned invented language graveyard and was kind enough to take us on a tour of all its weird, fascinating glory. Well, I started looking at these projects as a linguist with total derision. You know, who trying to make up a language? How, first of all, that never works. Second of all, what makes you think you could do that when, if you study language, you know how complicated it is? In 17th century England, a man called John Wilkins felt he was up to the task. He also felt that English, and any spoken language for that matter, could do better. Wilkins thought language failed us because words don't inherently communicate anything. For a child to learn that the word dog refers to the canine animal that walks on four legs and barks at its own shadow and likes chasing tennis balls, you simply have to memorize the association. The word dog itself doesn't actually help you understand its meaning. For Wilkins, the problem was that words mean too many different things. The word clear, for example, could mean that something was understandable or coherent, but it also could refer to the physical transparency of glass. To call the sky clear meant that it was without a cloud, but to clear an obstacle meant to go over something. Perfectly clear, right? To Wilkins, The fact that the word clear itself was so unclear was nonsense and needed to be fixed at once. The truth is what mattered, and words should express a single clear truth about a concept. He was also a man of science and wanted to make scientific thinking more accessible to the general public and more easily shared around the world. Ambiguity of meaning was slowing it all down. Surely there's a better way, Wilkins thought. He took inspiration from an important new breakthrough in scientific thinking. It will be like using this new invention called mathematical notation, which was was new. It was, wow, we can express these mathematical concepts with variables and symbols, and anyone can understand it, no matter what your language is. It doesn't matter what language you speak. This is the truth there on the page, and it's, it's with... So let's do that and make that kind of mathematical notation, but it'll be language, and we can say everything with it. For thousands of years, there, there was no plus sign, no minus sign, no symbols for multiplication, no equations. The concepts existed, but they were expressed in words. A plus sign doesn't leave room for interpretation. So John Wilkins thought, what a beautiful thing. Why couldn't language work the same way? Why couldn't the word dog be expressed as a sort of equation where each individual symbol or letter contributes to a singular specific truth. Wilkins language became a series of symbols to work exactly that way. Every shape had a specific meaning. Dog would have been pronounced as zeta, Z-I-T-A. Each sound points to a different characteristic of a dog. The Z sound means the word belongs to category 17 of beasts. The ah sound at the end meant a bigger but docile beast, and the t sound in zeta meant subcategory 5 of oblong-headed beast. <laughs> the oblong-headed oh. beast. So you distinguish it from cat, and which is round-headed. Or, you, know, you have to get to the truth of everything. You have to also distinguish it from what it's not. Let's say we need a word for you know butter or something. Well, what is butter? Is it... Are we going to focus on the way it's made or what it tastes like or what the shape is or what we use it for? That Then you start running into trouble because ooh, it's a lot harder than you thought 
to determine the exact meaning of every word you might want to use or every concept you might want to use. Piece of cake, Wilkins thought. All I have to do is map out and categorize every single thing in the known universe, which is exactly what he did. He sat down to make a map of meaning, a map of all the concepts in the universe, a giant tree diagram, basically, of where everything fit. Wilkins called his system a real philosophical language. In her book, Erica demonstrates just how thorough Wilkins' system was through a colorful and frustrating journey to figure out how to say the word shit. It's amazing document of what the 17th century English person thought of the world and where everything fit. But it didn't make a usable language. Because if you want to say anything, before you choose your words, you got to decide what exactly you want to say. <laughs> and we don't do that when we talk. We discover what we're saying as we're speaking or as we're writing. We don't know exactly what we want to say before we pick the words. And that's what speaking logically makes you do. It's like if you had to write computer code spontaneously to get meaning across. And that would take us a lot longer <laughs> than language does. As all my fellow programmers know, spontaneously writing computer code is the only way to do it. Void main, open parentheses, close parentheses, open curly brace, print F, open parentheses, double quote, I am coding spontaneously, full stop, space, woo, space, who, exclamation point, slash, N, close double quote, close parentheses, semicolon, close curly brace. John Wilkins may have been one of the first to pioneer this hyperlogical approach to language, but he was far from the last. Erica says the reasons most invented languages fail to catch on reveals something very important about what language is and what it isn't. It's not just a way of packing up a message and sending it along to someone else. The messiness of language gives it the flexibility that we absolutely need in order to be able to use it. We have to be able to talk about things that we've never seen before, that have just come along, new events, new technologies. We don't freeze up and say, ah, how can we talk about this? We just keep going and we invent words on the fly or we stick endings together. We make new sentence structures. We communicate. And that makes language messy as it develops. But messiness doesn't sit well with people who need to solve problems in order to feel useful. Humans are kind of natural engineers. Like you see a, hey, this is a problem. Hey, what's the solution? Let's make up something better. Messiness also doesn't sit well with people obsessed with control. Well, a lot of language inventors through history doing this project have had been kind of megalomaniacs. They think they're the first one to think of this idea, which they don't know they're not. And then they think they have the brilliant solution, which they don't. Then they push it out thinking everyone should pay attention to them because they are genius and because their idea is so perfect. Uh, but Zamenhof didn't start that way. Zamenhof is Ludwig Zamenhof, the Polish ophthalmologist and inventor of the most widely spoken invented language, the one you've likely heard of if you've heard of any, Esperanto. First published in 1887, 
Esperanto was designed around the belief that language barriers were the root of conflict around the world, and that if Esperanto became everyone's second language, clear communication would be possible and world peace would prevail. So, his ambitions were certainly just as lofty, but Erica says part of Esperanto's success can be drawn back to Zamenhof, its creator, doing what others couldn't, letting go. Zamenhof let the community do the language and didn't fiddle with it too much. And he also, the language itself was a very bare bones, here's the 16 rules and here's a bunch of word roots. And there weren't a lot of rules so that a person could speak it differently. Those roots were what made Esperanto tick, and supposedly what made it easier to learn than any other language. The roots would be either from Germanic or from Latin, kind of mixed up, and the word for and he chose from Greek, and he chose some words from Yiddish, and it was supposed to be a sort of mix, but also very, very easy to learn because no irregularities. So no irregular past tense. The verb is always inflected the same way. The the words, you learn this group of root words, and then you learn this limited set of endings you can stick on them, and then you go. And you don't have to learn the exceptions and the twists and all those things that make languages difficult. Those 16 basic rules have remained largely unchanged. Nouns end in O, adjectives in A, adverbs in E, which never changes, so you can always recognize what part of speech a word is. The roots also never change. Viro is truth. Vira is true. Vire is truly. So once you learn the root of a word, you can trust your intuition with unfamiliar words. The same type of intuition that cannot be trusted with English. Like when a child says they ated something, and we laugh at how adorably wrong they are for thinking they can rely on a nearly universal rule to express themselves. <laughs> Kids. For verbs in Esperanto, future tense ends in OS. For past tense, the word ends with IS. So, I will eat is mi manjos, which means I ate is mi manjis. And they all share a root word so you can learn related concepts very quickly. Food, for example, is manjajo. The open source nature of Esperanto also means that it's up to the community to help the language evolve with the times. Esther Shore is a poet and professor of English at Princeton University and an Esperanto speaker. From the TEDx stage in Rome, here she is explaining how this community-driven approach happens in practice. They've had to be very resourceful about coming up with new words for new times, but that's part of the fun. Take a look. The word for internet in Esperanto is interetto. And notice that Esperanto hasn't just swallowed the English word for internet whole. They've invented the word esperantically using the Esperanto word for net, which is retto, interetto. A cell phone or mobile phone in Esperanto is a poch telefono, a pocket phone. And a lertofono is literally a smartphone. Although I've heard one Esperantist refer to his as a chrome cerbo, a spare brain. But 
But the people who were attracted to Esperanto were less about the language itself and what the roots were, what the endings were, what the details of the language were, and the sort of messianic message that Zamenhof was communicating, world peace. And people latched onto that, and they had their first conference in 1905, international conference, where they got to meet each other and get together and really get on board with the idea, with the, the romantic and inspiring idea behind it. Esperanto took shape as a movement as much as a language, starting with Zamenhof. In fact, Esperanto means one who hopes, but it was originally not the name of the language. Zamenhof originally called it an international language and published it under the pseudonym Dr. Esperanto. He was the hopeful doctor. As his creation garnered more support, his followers started referring to the language as Esperanto, and there was no turning back. Today, true believers aren't just Esperanto speakers, they're Esperantists. This is what drew Erica closer in. I think my dad had some books when I was growing up and that I flipped through, but there was a big story of someone who had devoted their life to this, but they actually got people on board. They actually had a fan club and then people who started learning the language and using it. And I thought, hmm, really though, what do they do? Are they using it? I'm going to go find out. So I went to some Esperanto meetings, conferences to see what are they do? What are they really doing? And that it was, they were really doing something. And that was um, very interesting. There's definitely a type, like you can totally roll your eyes and be like, oh my God, that's so Esperanto land. And everybody knows what you're talking about. And that means there's a culture. Again, we're only considering Esperanto a failed idea in the sense that it did not live up to its original lofty goal of, you know, total world peace. But by the standard of invented languages, Esperanto is the golden goose, the ora ancero, as Dr. Esperanto might say. Today, estimates put active Esperanto speakers between 10,000 and 2 million. It's the only invented language with a population of native speakers. Around 2,000 people were raised speaking Esperanto as their mother tongue. Esperanto is spoken in at least seven countries. There are Esperanto conferences every year, and as of 2018, you can even learn Esperanto on Duolingo. One of the chief criticisms of Esperanto as a universal language that borrowed from languages all over the world is that in reality, it wasn't. It borrows from European languages, mostly English, Spanish, French, Italian, German. The syntax and grammar of Esperanto, like reading left to right or the subject-verb-object sentence structure, most closely resemble Western European languages. It uses the same Latin alphabet, so it would be easy to recognize if you spoke Western European languages. So if you're one of the billions of people living in places like China, Japan, Korea, and Vietnam who don't speak a European language, Esperanto doesn't feel very universal. So Zamenhof's claim that anyone could learn Esperanto in a number of hours is only close to holding up if you forget eh, roughly half the world's population.
In the land of invented languages, Erica O'Krent writes, This is a story of why language refuses to be cured and why it succeeds, not in spite of, but because of the very qualities the language inventors wanted to engineer away. Nobody sits down and writes out, here's what French is, and now everybody learn it. They use it. And, you know, eventually, yeah, you'd get grammar books and spelling books and things like that, but that's not what made the language at all. That always comes much, much, much later. Language is a natural and deeply human thing, which means, of course, it's flawed. But as Erica reminds us, those flaws aren't really flaws at all. They're the relics of history, evidence of something that was once useful, but isn't any longer, like your appendix or wearing a tie. You know, that is what irregular verbs are. Why do we say, I went instead of I goed? Well, it's, it's leftover. It's from this way old previous part of the language. That embracing of illogical, seemingly flawed aspects of language also provides an interesting clue to understanding a different invented language. Klingon, the language spoken by the fictional Klingon species in Star Trek. Klingon never aimed to solve the world's problems, but it has proven to be a lot stickier than most of the languages that did. It was created strictly for artistic purposes, crafted by linguist Mark Okrand, building on early ideas from Star Trek producers to bring the alien species and their culture to life. It was crafted to deliberately sound alien and is quite difficult to learn and speak, so true fluent speakers might be scarce, but the enthusiasm and community surrounding Klingon is extraordinary. There are Klingon conferences held every year where attendees are expected to speak only Klingon. You can learn Klingon on Duolingo. On Netflix, you can watch the series Star Trek Discovery with Klingon subtitles. Theater companies in Chicago and Arlington, Virginia have even put on Klingon versions of A Christmas Carol. Which begs the obvious question. How do you say bah humbug in Klingon? But we did learn that kapwa means success in Klingon and is a common way to end an interaction. So what made a language designed to be brutal, hard to learn, and even violent sounding more successful than those created to bring world peace and make misunderstandings a thing of the past. It had irregularities, it had dialect differences, it had really, really hard to pronounce sounds and really, really complicated grammar. It's very difficult to learn. It's, it doesn't solve any of those problems about language. But people who really got into it decided, hey, let's translate Hamlet into Klingon. And they did. Because that's what language is a language for a specific group of people with specific customs, flaws, and traditions. As is true with any art form, acts of creative expression will always provide a necessary piece of the puzzle that is human nature. In this case, it's simply what role language holds for us. When a language is crafted for artistic purposes, not linguistic ones, it seems we actually get a lot closer to what feels real, useful, and human. No one's out shopping for a better language, and you can't sell a language with, like, a washing machine. Like, this one has really great features, and this one's a lot more logical than that one. This one has easier sentence structure than that one. People don't look for languages that way. They're like, who are the people speaking that? Okay, that's, this is what I need to get with them. <laughs> Other critics will fault Esperanto for its original premise that differences in language are a problem and that a universal shared solution was the answer. 
Pressure to learn any universal language, including English, can have harmful effects, particularly for minority or indigenous communities whose unique languages play such a critical role in their traditions, history, and way of life. More on this shortly as we dive into endangered languages. It's clear the impulse of invented languages prevails throughout history. As for future generations, does Erica Okrent, linguist and tour guide of the invented language graveyard, does she think it's best to ignore that impulse? Not exactly. But the point is not to cure language. It's using natural language as your starting point, as your inspiration. Like, wow, wait, there's this really cool language in, you know, Siberia that does this really weird verb thing. I really like it. So I'm going to create a language that does that too. But but what if we mixed it with, you know, Greek and you know, people do people follow their own vision for what they would like a language to look like and they follow through and they create it and then they take it to meetings to have other people look at it and critique it and appreciate it and that's the new face of language inventing and it's so much better for the inventors. There's not years of toil and struggle and losing everything while you try to get the world to pay attention to you. There's joy and fun and creativity, you know, and some people would say it's it's useless and why don't you try, you know, saving an endangered language instead and why are you doing this? But it leads you to linguistics. So many kids that get into languages and do end up doing, you know, revitalization of Hawaiian or something, they start with Tolkien and being interested in how does how do you put words together with smaller pieces and it can bring you to linguistics and to other kinds of language activity. If you're looking for a way to engage with the weirdness of language, and English in particular, Erica's new book is a great place to start. It's titled Highly Irregular, Why Tough, Through, and Do Don't Rhyme and Other Oddities of the English Language. Chapter one is delightfully called, What the Hell, English? And tackles questions like, Why do we drive on a parkway and park on a driveway? And what is the deal with the word kernel? Which I guess you kind of miss when I say it. But it's C-O-L-O-N-E-L, not K-E-R-N-E-L. Good luck with this. Kids will ask you these questions and you have no answer. So my daughter asked me once, why don't we order a large drink and not a big one? And um, you stop and think, okay, I'll explain it. You see, it's, 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 I don't know. Like, there's no answer. But actually, there is an answer. And that's what the book is. Go by Highly Irregular and The Land of Invented Languages. There are so many more fascinating stories that we had to leave on the chopping block. Thank you, Erica, for your time and insight. So, to recap so far, Ben Franklin probably still has enough energy to roll over in his grave every time someone explains what a silent K is to a second grader. Language is a strange, natural, culture-shaping beast that refuses to be tamed. And the things that make our mother tongues unique are clues to follow, not flaws to fix. Which brings us to Act 2, Endangered Languages. Hi, everyone. My name's Max. I'm a producer for the show. I normally prefer to stay far away from the microphone, but before we get into part two of the episode, I just wanted to add a quick note 
and a content warning, particularly for any listeners from indigenous communities. The beginning of the segment features a recording of a highly respected elder of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Nation, who has since passed away. As you'll hear Scott explain, his name was Jerry Wolf. In the recording, Jerry shares a few examples of Cherokee words and phrases and talks a bit about the role the Cherokee language plays in their community. So again, out of respect for the sensitivity around hearing from an elder leader who is no longer with us, the section featuring Jerry's voice is about two and a half minutes long, if you'd prefer to skip ahead. Here's Jerry. When you meet uh, people, there's several ways of greeting those people. Uh, one is uh, CO. That's the main one. That's hello or howdy. We all say howdy. CO. And they would say, Tohigwojo. Tohigwojo. Are you okay? Or you can say, Oshigwojo. Uh, uh, and that means the same thing. Are you all right? Uh-huh. That's Jerry Wolf, a highly respected elder of the Cherokee Nation in Western North Carolina. The recording of Jerry is from a video recorded in 2013 by Wikitongs. It's one of the thousands cataloged by the organization to help preserve and revitalize endangered languages around the world. Here's Jerry explaining more about how the Cherokee language works and why it's so important to the Cherokee people. Now, the plural is uh, the beginning of a word. However, we say in the very beginning of what we're going to speak on, we can put the plural in the very beginning, the first character, ani, ani, like A-N-I, ani, chalagi, and that means a group, ani, that's a, that's a plural. If we did not have a language, we would not be Cherokee people. We are Cherokee people, and I'm very proud of that. Most of all the elders are uh, gone that spoke the language. Out of 14,000 members here at Cherokee, there are only less than 500, maybe even 400, Cherokee-speaking people left. And some of the children learned, but uh, they were just about faded away. But we do have a... UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, tracks the state of languages around the world at the risk of extinction. According to the most recently available data, there are an estimated 1,000 people left who still speak Jerry's mother tongue. Unfortunately, Jerry Wolf passed away in 2018, bringing the Cherokee language a step closer to fading away, as Jerry described. Max here again to clarify and highlight just a couple additional things that came to light as we were editing this episode. First, according to a 2019 census, there are actually between 1,500 and 2,100 fluent Cherokee speakers today, more than the 1,000 estimated by UNESCO. There's also remarkable work being done to increase that number, including robust learning communities within Cherokee Nation and growing early childhood immersion programs. There's now a Cherokee Wikipedia site. They even became the first Native tribe to use motion and facial capture technology to preserve and promote the Cherokee language. We'll include links to all of the above at lookbothways.kenincarta.com, so check it out to learn more. Okay, back to the episode. Here's Daniel. 
My name is Daniel Bogriudel. I'm the co-founder and uh, executive director of Wikitongues. 7,000 languages could, are spoken and signed today, but 3,000 languages could disappear in 80 years, marking the loss of half of humanity's cultural, historical, and ecological knowledge. We spoke with Daniel to learn more about their work and why language revitalization is so important. So Wikitongues helps people keep their languages alive. We safeguard at-risk languages, expand access to mother tongue resources, and we directly support language revitalization projects. Daniel and his team are working to build a massive bank of all the world's languages by crowdsourcing audio files, lexicon documents, and video oral histories like the one you just heard of Jerry Wolf. Clearly, no small feat. And it's actually just part of what Wikitongues is currently working on. Because, to Daniel and the growing number of language activists aiming to save endangered languages, language extinction isn't just a loss of words. The consequence of losing a language for all of us is that we lose knowledge. Hey everybody, my name is Stephanie Witkowski and I'm the Executive Director of 7,000 Languages. 7,000 Languages is a nonprofit organization that works with Indigenous communities around the world to help them teach, learn, and sustain their language through technology. Stephanie and Daniel were gracious enough to be our guides for this portion of the episode. As a society, we lose knowledge about what is possible, what languages are even capable of. And by that token, you lose knowledge about what human cognition is capable of. One of my favorite facts, and if there are any linguists listening to this, they might roll their eyes because I'm going to say something that's a little reductive, but I think for like general purposes, it's salient. There's only about a couple hundred concepts that have a word in every language, and yet daily speech in every language is somewhere between like three to 5,000 words, and most languages have many, many, many more words than that. I think English has 150,000 words. So the vast majority of vocabulary in any language is unique to that language. So when you lose a language, you lose all of these other things that the language encodes. And what are those things? One of the really big ones is knowledge of the natural environment in which the culture emerged, right? So there are actually fields of science that kind of fall under this umbrella of ethnobiology in which biologists and linguists work with speakers of different languages to unravel ecological or biocultural knowledge of local plant and animal species that are encoded in that language to accelerate conservation efforts. And indeed, sometimes new species are actually identified by the scientific community that way. Because, you know, this culture has been here for centuries, if not millennia, and they, and they know this ecosystem better than anybody. As Daniel mentioned, 3,000 languages are at risk of extinction over the next several decades. Organizations like Wikitongues and 7,000 languages are doing everything they can to prevent that from happening which often includes clearing up exactly how languages go extinct in the first place. Languages don't necessarily die a natural cause of death. I think one of the greatest misconceptions of the 21st century is that cultural diversity is waning as a side effect of globalization. 
when your average majority language speaker, and to be clear, when I say majority language speaker, I mean somebody who speaks a language whose future is kind of taken for granted. So we're talking about speakers of English, Spanish, uh, French, Mandarin, Russian, right? Um, these kind of global lingua francas. And I think your average speaker of any of these languages, when they think, oh, well, what's the big deal about language loss? It's natural. Languages evolve. We don't speak the same English that we used to speak. Latin morphed into the Romance languages we know today, or that nobody in the English-speaking world talks like Chaucer anymore. And while it's absolutely true that languages develop and wax and wane over time as culture changes, because language is a dynamic reflection of culture, the current language extinction crisis is not a result of that phenomenon. Those are two very different scenarios where languages are changing versus being exterminated versus it being connected with human rights violations. The current language extinction crisis is the result of policies that were ubiquitous until the 1970s and 80s. In the United States, it was legally mandatory until 1978 for indigenous children to go to boarding schools where they would be assigned English names and often abused if found speaking their native tongue. Canada had a very similar system. In Mexico, it was legal until as late as 2003 to ban kids from speaking indigenous languages in public schools. For, you know, context, these are languages like Yucatec Mayan, Nahuatl, which was the official language of the Aztec Empire, and so on. In Europe, uh, the similar policies took place well until the 1970s and 80s. It wasn't until the 1990s that the predecessor to the European Union passed the Charter for Regional and Minority Languages. There was a quote by George Pompidou, the president of France in the 1970s, that kind of embodied the attitude of language policy in Europe, which was, there could be no place for minority languages in a France destined to make its mark on Europe. You don't need to be a student of history or politics to see how language extinction is something that went hand in hand with colonialism and genocide and other kind of recent and, you know, some would say ongoing atrocities. Uh, pick any endangered language and look at the history of the people who speak it. Because if you don't have your language, you don't really have access to your culture. And without your culture, there's, you know, a certain kind of like psychological and spiritual gap uh, or hole, right, that can lead to destabilized communities and broken generational bonds. Conversely, language revitalization actually fixes a lot of those things. So, you know, in Australia, they recently, in Arnhem Land, which is an indigenous majority region, started integrating language revitalization into core school curricula, and for the first time, graduation rates are above 50%. There's no non-profit, you know, run by white English speakers that could have come in and fixed that graduation rate problem better than, you know, the actual integration of language revitalization into the program, you know, by the communities themselves. So there's, there's just, there, there's so many reasons that it's good for humanity. It's, you know, it's education, it's economic development, it's scientific research, it's, it's cultural sovereignty, it's a form of reparations.
So what can be done? At 7,000 Languages, Stephanie and her team are focused on the intersection of language education and technology. Through a partnership with language learning software company, Transparent Language, they work directly with indigenous, minority, and refugee communities to build custom language courses that anyone can use at absolutely no cost. What our technology does really well is create courses for these users of the language. So we create vocab courses, we create grammar courses, conversation courses. It's really a robust tool. So we work with communities to get their language data and we funnel that into the transparent language tool so that the output is that they have this really beautiful language course that they can use on their phones, their computer, tablets. They can even use it offline. Whether it's immersion-based language nests, classroom learning, or even just through play, Stephanie says there's no one path to language revitalization. What matters is getting children to try, make mistakes, and feel excited about putting language to use. They are little sponges. Children are meant to learn language. They are born ready to do it. Um, and you just speak to them. You just talk to them. You don't have to tell them, oh, this is actually a past participle, right? You know, it's really community-led and it has to be. Sometimes there's this idea, and even linguists are really guilty of this, of saying, well, language revitalization looks like this. It looks like people um, sitting in a room and speaking in a language for one hour, whatever, whatever idea it is. I'm of the mindset that all goals are good goals. So, you know, even if a community says, we just want our children to learn how to say hello, and we want our children to learn some animal names, and we want our children to learn some songs, great. That's language reclamation. That's language revitalization. Daniel says he thinks about Wikitongues as spanning across three interlocking approaches that support language diversity. First is documentation, preserving a language through recorded speech, dictionaries, and written texts. Next is revitalization, usually by reintroducing a language back into daily life and ensuring adults have what they need to pass it on to a new generation. The third is activism. Language activism is kind of a little more nebulous, but it involves all the, the kind of awareness raising and political action that could be part of creating an environment where language revitalization and documentation are, are, are more possible and accessible. So we actually started just with documentation. We were crowdsourcing videos in as many languages as possible, ideally every language in the world, um, with all the caveats that come with a statement like that. And as we worked on that project, people started reaching out to us asking, how do I save my language? History shows us that languages can be saved. Hebrew was virtually extinct as a natively spoken language around the second century. It was revitalized nearly 2,000 years later in the 1800s and has since become a critical part of Jewish identity around the world. Daniel also shares the story of Donna Pirit. Donna Pierreed is a member of the Tunica Biloxi tribe of Louisiana, and she is the sole person who spearheaded the revitalization of their language in the 80s. And it originally had gone extinct in 1948, and the last speaker of the language worked with the linguist before he died to leave a dictionary behind. And so Donna would go to Baton Rouge and New Orleans and photocopy dictionaries and other you know old documentation books about the language and bring it home. She would teach her kids 
Then they started sending out newsletters about the process, and then they got other families involved. And today, 10% of the tribe is enrolled in immersion courses. But you can imagine that that whole process, the original process was like, just go get the book about the language. And then the next thing was like, let me teach my kids. And then the next thing was, let's get someone else involved. And then the next thing was, let's get the tribal government involved. And, you know, so the toolkit is really meant to help you walk through that whole process to think in terms of really project management in a funny way. It's not unlike running an organization or a company or an activist project, right? The toolkit, Daniel mentions, is the language sustainability toolkit designed to create a roadmap for people seeking to revitalize a language at risk of extinction. People like Wendy Goodlow. Wendy is a member of the Black Seminole community in Texas. Their language is called Afro-Seminole Creole. Today, there's only 20 speakers left. With the goal of doubling that number, and armed with only the help of those 20 people and a 1,000-word dictionary, Wendy came to Wikitongues for help. That was in the 70s or 80s, I think, and that's all they have to bring this language back. So... Wendy has been part of a cultural revitalization for Afro-Seminole Creole since like the 2000, like early 2010s, and it started around the effort to save a cemetery in their community that where a lot of their community members were buried, and they set up a museum, a small museum, and a nonprofit around that. And so, language revitalization was kind of like the next step, right? Because in Wendy's words. A cultural revitalization without the language, like, you know, how many events and, like, t-shirts are we going to sell? Like, what do we do next? What carries us forward and onto the next generation? And so what I'm really excited about is next year we're going to be opening this process up to public application and we're going to su- provide funding and training to 75 revitalization projects by 2025. So if you're listening and want to start a revitalization project, Write us an email, hello at wikitongues.org, and we will let you know when the application process is open. Whether it's the robust learning software from 7,000 languages, the vast database of languages from Wikitongues, or even a recent app developed by Google called Woolaroo, which uses AI to document and teach endangered languages, Technology can clearly play an important role in solving the problem of language extinction and accessibility. But tech can also contribute to the problem itself, and sometimes in ways that many dominant language speakers would likely never even consider. Having access to media in your language and having access to core technology in your language is absolutely a, uh, you know, I guess a form of linguistic privilege, right? There is research that would indicate that the inability to use your language on your device can accelerate language loss because there's something subconscious that happens where if your phone is talking to you in whatever the locally dominant language is, it kind of sends a subtle message that your language isn't important and that you shouldn't really speak it anymore. If you want to be modern, if you want to be part of the global economy. So, you know, multilingual support is absolutely critical for, like, inclusive design. One company that seems to be of the same mindset, Motorola Mobility. Back in May of 2021, Motorola announced that the latest version of the Android operating system on Motorola phones would feature two indigenous Latin American languages, Kangang and Niangatu. Kangang 
is spoken by communities in southern Brazil and is classified by UNESCO as definitely threatened, which means children no longer learn it as their first language. Nyangatu speakers are mostly found in the Amazon region, including parts of Colombia and Venezuela, and is considered severely threatened, meaning it's only spoken by about 6,000 people and primarily the older generations. For Motorola, it's part of a broader focus on accessible design and awareness about the role technology plays in language revitalization. To learn more about it, we talked with Renata Altenfelder, Global Executive Director, Brand and Marketing at Motorola Mobility. Here's my conversation with Renata. We are joined today by Renata Altenfelder, Global Executive Director, Brand Marketing at Motorola Mobility. She is based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and was part of a team that recently added support for two endangered languages to Android 11 running on Motorola phones. Welcome to Look Both Ways, Renata. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. Just to dive right into it, can you tell us about how the decision to include the endangered languages of Kangang and Niangatu, and hopefully that's close on the pronunciation, how that decision to add those two languages into Motorola smartphones came about? So we are always looking for ways to be disruptive, to look at new technologies and how to apply technology for the good. So how it comes to this program was the group of globalization and the group of languages that realized that there was a lack of a presence of indigenous languages on the digital world. So they came with the project of saying, what if we use our knowledge and our expertise in order to make those languages available into our smartphones. So it was well received. And then we got in contact with a professor, Professor Vilmar Dangelis, that is from Unicum, uh, one university, a big university in Latin America. And he works with endangered languages. So looking at all of the endangered languages that existed today, uh, we ended up choosing Kangang and Nyangatu, which are two very important uh, languages in Latin America, not only in Brazil. They are from the two biggest trunks of language we have uh, in Latin America. There are the Macro-J, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and the other one is the Tupi. So very important language in our culture overall. And, and maybe just help us a little bit in... Where in Latin America or in Brazil um, would you find native speakers of those languages? Yeah, so Kangang in on the southeast of Brazil, and then Yangatu is on the Amazon area, so it's also Brazil, Colombia, and Venezuela. And when you went to go start working on this, obviously you said you talked to a professor, um, but did you also work with the, the native speakers of those languages, and how did you find them, and, and uh, how did that work out? One of the things that for us was crucial was to have credibility and to have the truth behind this project. We need to work with the people who really talk and live that language and that culture. So a group of people that had people from the university, from Morola, from another partner that works with that is about um, working on languages. And also we they help us to identify people at the younger two and Kangan communities to work with us. So we have native speakings working with us on the whole project. Uh, so they help us uh, on building up these, this whole language and this whole vocabulary. So this group of people from the professor, the language experts from Morola, and the people from the communities together, 
they also had to work and identify the meaning of each one of the expressions. It's like we always say, there is this one word in Portuguese, saudades, that a lot of people know about it, which is about missing someone, but it's a little bit more than missing. They also had their saudades words, and we need to explain what it is, and they need to explain what it is, and we found new expressions. And the opposite was also true, right? Because what is, what is the importance of having those languages is that by having it, we are giving access to the people who are native to the whole digital universe because they are able to communicate themselves with each other. They are able to translate what they don't understand into their own language. But also for those like people who doesn't know the language to know something different. So in order to do that, we also need to translate our own expressions to those two languages, right? So it's not a, just a one way, it's a both ways that we need to, to work here. So it's a learning from both sides or three sides here, right? Yeah, for sure. Do you have any good examples of, I think that's a, a great example of words that exist in one language but don't necessarily have a counterpart in others. So what, coming from sort of the very highly technical world of computers and smartphones. I mean, is there anything that stands out in your minds of a word that was difficult to translate back into either Kangang or Niengatu? There was not specifically on the technical side, but inside of our phones, we do have some specificities in terms of features. And one of them is what we call model actions. In Portuguese or in English, the translation is very, like, direct. On Niengatu, if in Kangang, it was not like this. We need, first of all, because model and then action. So the way of talking about action is different. They don't have the word for action. Hmm. So how to explain that? So there was a whole world of discussions about how to make it clear for them. Because those are expressions that they don't use on their daily lives. Yeah. So they also didn't know what it means. So... Some of them were not used to use that on their daily life. So they need to, they needed to look at it in a different way. So that was super interesting. It's all about, as I was saying, I think it was a learning from both sides on languages and also expressions, ways of working. So as you can imagine, some of them were not used to the timelines of a global company project, hmm. especially on the technology side. If you are locking a software version, and if you miss the deadline, it means that whatever you are developing won't be available at your phone when it's launched. So we need to work with very tight timelines. Right. So also that was something that we need to find a way to combine those timings and make sure that this would work for both sides. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd, I'd prefer if you figured out a way to make that sort of non-deadline-driven time apply to software development. <laughs> that would have been a great breakthrough that I would have supported 100%. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that is, that is good, right? Like it, it's really, really working on like, what is this process of digitalization? You know, like uh, how to work with different professionals from all across the globe. And there was a lot of different translations in this path, right? Because we are talking about not only we had Brazilian professionals, so the professor, the person who came with this idea was a Brazilian guy. And then we had Juliana was the, the manager who was leading this project on the globalization team. They were all Brazilians, but the universal or the overall language that we expect, there's a lot of on the English version. So that we had to translate from Yenga to 
Kaigan into Portuguese for the conversation, but then we need to translate it into English because a lot of the discussions on our side from the from the engineering part was happening in English. Wow, that's that's a that's a so, lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of work. <laughs> But it, it was it was so excited. We were like so much in love that we didn't even thought about it. The other day we we count the number of words or expressions, right? That they were translated or created somehow uh, for this, and that was over five hundred k in nine That's months. That's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Wow. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But it's so much in line with what we believe what I believe, which is really using technology to, to have a positive impact, right? This is not only about the language itself, it is about preserving a culture, right? A language is a very important part of a whole culture because it does communicate and it does translate uh, the way that that specific group of people think, the way that that specific group of people act, so having this translated and having this into the digital world, which is where a lot of the things or most of the things that we have today, if not the totality, are, it's guaranteeing somehow that this is have a continuity. And for me, this is super important and, and, and we need to make it like those languages are the base of the language that we speak today. A lot of the words in Portuguese came from, from languages like uh, Yangatu and Kangan. So it's, it is a way also for create and generate curiosity on the people to understand what is Kaingang, what is Yengatu from younger generation, because they start seeing it on the news, they start seeing it on their own phones. We know young generations are always playing with their smartphones and people are playing it. So they see a different language there when they look at, they have a different language on the Gboard from Google. Uh, what is this? So they start going after and trying to to understand, and this is a way of making the culture alive. I think that's great. In preparing for this interview, we found a quote from a native Ningatu speaker who said, over time, Ningatu has been weakening more and more, many times to discrimination of the language. People are ashamed to use it. Do you feel like that by this action of including it more so it's now part of the, uh, you know, the future, right, this is the, or the present, you think that's going to help with that? Yes, I think and, and I really hope because what we know talking with them, what is start happening is that young people feel ashamed because they think this is old. They think it, it doesn't look cool. So, you know, like they don't even talk with their grandparents sometimes on their own language. So having it on the smartphone, I think it's a way also to show this youth that this is a language of today also. This is not a, a language that is that. This is a language that they should be proud of using it. It carries much more than what they think. And I think also by having it classify as a language in this world also help other people also to break this barrier. We had an example of one of the guys who has been working with us on the expertise that made me sad when I heard and made me make sure that what we are doing is the right thing. He went to the city. He lived in the Amazon, right? So he went to the city to, put, to look for a job. And then the guy asked how many languages did he speak? And he said two. 
And then the guy said, okay, so we speak Portuguese and English, Portuguese and Spanish. And then he said, no, I speak Portuguese and Nyangatu. And then the guy said, Nyangatu is not a language. Oh, that's brutal. This is brutal. This is killing everything in terms of culture, you know, like self-confidence. So having it in, in places where people can look at and, you know, you can pick up your phone and say, look, how is not a language? It's listed together with the other 80 languages in the world and I have it here on the Gboard. So also this was an important work that the team has done with Google. So all of the, the new um, Androids, you will also be able to download it on your Gboard and type it that language. So that's what I'm saying. Definitely this will help the languages to be accepted and to be known by a wider number of people. So now the languages are embedded into a version of Android that runs on Motorola. Is what's the what's the broader plan for now that you have this mapping? Because this is, I'm sure, valuable to or useful in sort of many other situations. How how does that information get shared out for other versions of Android or just generally for use in the technical community? Yeah. So this is not for only for Motorola. So I think as I as I said, we started doing it, but since the beginning, we know this is bigger than one brand, right? Right. Not only bigger than Motorola. I think that this is bigger than any brand because this is about all of us. So this is an open source and it is available on the um, Windows 12, if I'm not mistaken. Windows 11, I it's think is the next one coming out. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. It is in 11. I'm already on the next year. <laughs> uh, it, it's already, uh, it's going to be available in all of Motorola products. Oh, and on the Gboard, you already can download it. That's great. Awesome. That's awesome. So this is very important for us, right? Like this is not something that we want to be only for Motorola users. This is a part of who we are in our DNA that is really about disrupting the status quo and bringing technology that makes a difference in the lives of people. So obviously this was a, a great success for you. Uh, is there a plans to start on other languages? And if so, how, how do you decide which ones you might start on next? Yeah, we are making now like studies across the globe. We don't have the, fine, the, the next one yet, uh, but we are looking together with experts and, and, and professors to really understand what is the roadmap. We are keeping, keep working on that. It's also really important to call out here that this is the decade of indigenous language at UNESCO. So this also, we believe that is going to bring attention to the topic and we want to continue being part of this conversation. Okay, that's, that's great. I want to keep track of that and see, see what's next. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so outside of language, um, what else are, are you doing? I mean, this is, this is sort of very classic um, inclusivity and accessibility. Um, what other kinds of things are going on at Motorola that also make sure that Motorola continues to be both accessible and inclusive? We are a lot. <laughs> um, so as I was saying, we have this pillar of inclusivity in, in everything that we do, right? So I previously talked about model actions, and for me, that's also one of the one of the examples of how accessibility sometimes can be easy, but people don't necessarily think about it. So when you when you look at the Motorola phones, there are some tools there, like the way that you can access your camera or your flash, just moving your hands in in a different movements, and then you can access the camera. The way that you can play with the size of the letters, the way that you can play with the colors of what you have in your phones. On top of that, also, we had a lot of panels discussing what are the needs of the people in the future 
and working together with the engineers to bring this to life into our products. So there's a lot of things from the software execution from also like point of sale when we are developing furnitures it's it's really thinking about how people are going to enter we do have like stores and kiosks across uh, latin america and the globe so how will people are going to walk inside of our stores what is the the height of the furnitures that we have internally how they can grab the phone so all of these are, are thought not only for one group of people, but thinking about different needs. Right? So I think when we say that we have in our core the inclusivity, it's important to say that it goes beyond the product itself. It's in everything that we do. What do you think gets misunderstood about inclusivity and inclusive and accessible design? When talk about inclusivity, in, in my view, it's all about creating a new norm. Right. People will still have this concept that the majority is the law and that the different groups don't have the same rights. So I think by the moment that people understand that when you work with your minds and you work with different people with different needs and you understand what they they are looking for and you start giving them this as a company, this actually is very positive for your results. Not only because people will look at you in the different ways, but because you are going to access a different type of, like a different group that currently doesn't have access to your products because it doesn't really solve their needs. There are still people who think that doing something for a specific group or with a specific needs is extra work because it's not worth it. And I can tell you it's worth it for different things and not because it's the right thing to do, but it's also because this is going to bring you more money. So as a company, look at look at this as also a generator of, of results. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, I think you just nailed it. It's just that it's the right thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do. But then also, it's, you're increasing your audience. So, so why wouldn't you do that, right? And so, and a lot of the things that make for good, accessible, and inclusive design make for good design, right? So it's not like they are two arbitrary things. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not like, oh... If I make it accessible for more people, then I'm making it worse for everyone, which is, you know, or worse for the majority, right? You can you can do both, right? Like I think you just demonstrated by we have the ability to change languages on our phone. Why not have as many languages as we can have time to get in there? Just just do them, right? Like once it's in there and once everyone shares that that translation base that you guys have start, started on, right? That's just it's easy to plug in now. So I think it's just like like you said, it's it's trying to meet people where they are instead of expecting them to come to you, right? So and you're always going to, and that's always the right thing to do, and it's also a profitable thing to do. So I, I don't see how you can not do it. I think it, we have, you know, you have this statement that says when you are not including, you are excluding, right? Uh, and I think it's exactly like this, because when you are not looking at all of, uh, like the, the totality of the needs, and you are excluding the other one. It's like you have this blockage. But when you are willing to open your mind and see, you're going to see so many opportunities that you can jump in and then you can do amazing things in that. So I think that is, for me, the ultimate goal of, of all of us we should have as humanity, right? Like stop putting people in boxes and just look at the good for everyone. I, I can't think of a better way to end our interview, Renata. <laughs> Th thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you spending the time, and I, I really love to hear the work that you're doing and the fact that I think it's going to mean a lot to the people who 
speak those languages and other people who are in the same community as the people who speak that languages to help better understand them and, and get curious about that language and, and start to want to learn more about that culture. So I think that's also going to be another great effect of it. Exactly. So, and I thank you. I think, thank you for the opportunity. It's always good about like talking about that is always good about talking what we say, like it's technology with heart, right? Like this, this is how can we humanize technology? How can we bring this uh, to everyone? So very, very thankful for the opportunity. Thank you to Renata for an excellent conversation. And thank you again to Stephanie and Daniel. To get involved and learn more about their work, visit wikitongues.org and 7000.org. And if you'd like to simply learn more about the history and culture of indigenous people, we thought we'd leave you with some sage advice from Daniel. I think one really, really easy step that anybody can take is to learn about the original language of where you live. Maybe learn original place names. Like if you live in New York, learn that it is also the Lenape Hoking, right? Learn about what was here and learn about what is still here just in a, in a state of political marginalization. More broadly, learn about what your languages were because of the vast majority of us don't speak the same language that our grandparents or great-grandparents did. And consider reclaiming one of your languages. If everyone is involved in language revitalization, you know, their own personal language revitalization, that kind of like normalizes it for everybody else. Right? And, and the more you normalize multilingualism, the more you make it easier for speakers of marginalized languages or at-risk languages to use their languages everywhere, right? That's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed our supersized episode, or as you hopefulists out there might say, Granda Episodo. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our podcast on the podcastery of your choice. You can also follow us on Instagram at Look Both Ways Podcast. This episode was written and produced by Max Parcell, with sound engineering from Chris Mitchell. Ear canning with a light dusting of humor was provided by Scott Herms. If you have an idea for a podcast episode, visit lookbothways.kinandcarta.com. That's K-I-N-A-N-D-C-A-R-T-A.com. And leave us a note, in English preferably, but if you wish... Feel free to invent a new language with a new alphabet and leave us a note using it. Kraplam! Kraplam!